We're glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter six. We're continuing on here through the Gospel of John. So are you like me that, uh, where it's easy, it seems, to get busy with work or uh, to get busy in life and then it seems as though in, in life that, it, that your viewpoint is always downward. It's always not so much depressed, but you're just keeping your nose down to do what you need to do. You have the task, you have your, your list, and so you're just always going at it. You have the next thing. You have work that needs to be completed, and unless you do the work, it doesn't get done. So you, you know what the next task is, and you need to do it. You have the next meeting, the next paper to write, the next phone call that has to happen, the next email that needs to be written, the next dirty diaper that needs to be changed, the next, next meal that needs to be prepared, the, the next car repair, oil change, or difficult conversation with a coworker or a loved one. And, and it's the next thing. And it seems as though your gaze is always down on, on, on the, the to-do list of what needs to happen next. And I realized this week as I was studying this incredible story that we're going to unpack this morning that I probably spend too much time with my gaze looking down at what's next and not enough time reflecting on who God is, remembering who he is, the God we serve. I need to confess this morning, sometimes I forget the majesty of God in the midst of life. I forget that even in the, the, the area we live where we're, we're blessed to live in the Northwest. I forget about that sometimes. I was reminded again this last week when Katie's parents were visiting us and they live in Michigan and, and uh, had a couple opportunities driving around with Katie's father and we would be discussing all sorts of things. He's newly retired. He's an elder at the church. They ministered in Michigan and we talked about ministry here, ministry there. But have these discussions, and all of a sudden on the road, he would just stop. He would stop talking, and I look over, what's wrong with him? And the reason was he's, he caught the mountain. And he just is in awe of the grandeur of Mount Rainier. And I, I think, boy, I, I forget. You know, we get to see right in our backyards the grandeur of God. And I ask, when was the last time you were in awe of God? I mean, in awe of God. You were wowed by God. Psalm 8 gives us some insight. Last week with the missionary who was here shared Psalm 8. And I want to read it again this morning for you because it gives us that, that glimpse again to who God is. And the, David, the psalmist, writes Psalm 8, starting verse 4, and he says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And what we have in that psalm is a glimpse into David daydreaming about God. God is big 
He is mighty. He's given us things. He's given us the earth and things in the earth to, again, call back into remembrance of who he is and how great a God we really serve. And I share all that because as we approach a story that you've probably heard if you've been in church your whole life, you just kind of gloss over. Jesus feeds 5,000, yeah. Like it's somehow a cafeteria line that people just walk through and got food. That's not it at all. I'm praying that as we look through this passage, you will be in awe of God and his majesty and his, his might. This morning, as we look at this passage, there's three things I want you to see. The, the pity of Jesus for his disciples, for the people, the power of Jesus, and the purpose of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6 and follow with me as I read John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes, then he, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who eat. When the people saw the sign that he had done. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come freely this morning and to worship you. Father, we recognize that throughout this world, in the last day, there have been believers in countries that have to go in hiding to come into worship, to join together as the body of Christ. We ask, God, that you would protect them, that you would grow their ministry, that the gospel would go forth. I think of the churches throughout the world, God, that pastors work full-time jobs, and then on top of that, prepare to preach your word week in and week out because they love you. They want to see your gospel proclaimed, to grow people. And Father, help us not to take for granted what we have here this morning. And Father, as we look into this passage, as we look into this incredible miracle, Help us recognize your tender mercies to us, your patience with us. 
Help us to, again, recognize and see your power in our lives. And help us understand your purpose for us and for the ministry that we have throughout this world. Teach us this morning, God. Cause us to come away different this morning, changed because of your word. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. As we begin in chapter six, I wanna start with the pity of Jesus here. John, again, as he starts this passage, is a little vague to the readers of the timing of this event. At first glance, it may seem that the events in chapter six will be following right after the events in chapter five, but after further study and comparison with other gospel stories, it's, it's almost six months later that chapter six begins following chapter five. If you remember a month or so ago, I mentioned that the Gospel of John is, is really spanning only 21 days of Jesus's ministry. It's amazing to see that of all the chapters that are there, but it's only 21 days approximately of just his ministry. So, so John is being very selective here of what he shares with his readers. It's also worth noting that this story that we cover this morning the feeding of the 5,000 is the only story that's shared in all of the gospel accounts except for the crucifixion. Every gospel writer writes about this story and the significance. And as we get in, you'll understand why. You know, if you were to mash up the four accounts of the story, it would go something like this. The 12 disciples came to Jesus and said to him, Jesus, the, the place where we are is a wilderness, a desert, and, and the hour is already late. So, so Jesus, you need to send the people away so they can find lodging and find food. But Jesus answers them, they do not need to go away. You should give them something to eat. And the disciples answered Jesus, how can, we, how can we provide food? We at least 200 denarii to feed these people. So Jesus says to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And then when they return, they say to Jesus, we have five loaves and two fish from a boy in a crowd. What can we do with that? It's not nearly enough to feed all these people. Jesus, in, in this story leading up to it has left a, a place of ministry that was very fruitful, but the purpose was to get away. They, they've had a, a very full time of ministry. Mark chapter six gives us some, some understanding of that. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure time even to eat. And so they leave, they, they go away here as John says to, to the other side of Galilee. But the people, they're running after him. They're, they're literally running after Jesus. They're, they're flocking to him. Jesus had become a rock star to them because he, he's performing these miracles. He's healing people and they wanna see what's next. Possibly there's people there that need healing. They wanna be healed. But the disciples and Jesus need a time of rest and recoup for ministry. I want you to notice as you see how Jesus responds in the midst of being tired, being wore out. He's, and in the disciples too, it's the, the response is interesting for us to, to take note. But as we come back to John's gospel in chapter six, we start off in verse one after Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat down with his disciples. The setting of the story is the Sea of Galilee. Jesus takes his disciples there to rest. The Sea of Galilee is, is located inland about, and is about 600 feet below sea level. It stretches 13 miles long and six miles wide. 
So it's not small by any means. The sea is surrounded by hills and mountains that reach elevations of 2,000 to over 4,000 feet. One commentator says that the, the east to west valleys pull cool Mediterranean air from the west every afternoon, which collides with the heated desert air of the basin, creating strong winds and frequent storms that swirl over the sea. Log that away, okay? I'm going to use that next week, so don't forget that. Because as we get later in John chapter 6, he's going to talk about that. So Galilee was a, a peasant village, a society, who, who lived off the land, but they were taxed heavily. So many people didn't have very much. They lived off what they could grow in their land. These are poor people. They're coming after Jesus. They want to hear from him. They, they've, they've recognized what he's done, and they want to be a part of his ministry. And when we understand from the, the chapter, it's not so much they want to obey Jesus and be a follower, but they're looking for the next thing. They're, they're curious. They've been drawn in. And they're looking maybe for the next miracle or the next show. And John informs us in verse 4 that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Why is this information helpful? Well, it, it lays out the reason for the rest of John chapter 6. It's an important time for the Jewish crowd. It's not mentioned here so much for chronological benefit as much as a theological benefit. The Jewish Passover celebrated the exodus from Egypt. In this celebration, they would slaughter a lamb and then eat it. And in this gospel, as we've covered from John the Baptist, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so this carries throughout the gospel, this understanding for the Jewish people. This is the second time in John's gospel that it's mentioned that the Passover later happens again in chapter 11. You know, the mention of the Passover will make more sense as we dive deeper in the chapter 6, but you're going to have to come back next week and the weeks following. So here they are. They're seated on the mountain. Jesus sees the crowd coming towards him. It's a large crowd. I'm sure it could be seen from a long distance away. And Jesus, knowing that it's late in the day, turns to Philip and says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus lifts his eyes. He, he sees people. In Mark's gospel that I read earlier, it says that when he, he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when Jesus sees you, when Jesus sees people, he doesn't see burdens. When Jesus sees people, he doesn't see opportunities to seize. When Jesus sees people, he doesn't see issues that just need to be resolved so that he can move on to more important things. He's a shepherd. This is what shepherds do. When Jesus sees people, he sees their true spiritual need, of which why he's there, he sees their current physical need also. And Jesus sees the people. And what's his reaction? He has compassion for them. He's moved to act. He sees, he sees sheep untended, unprotected, and free to get in all sorts of trouble. And what a picture that is as sinners left to themselves and harassed by the rabbis of that day. 
The people like sheep were in need of true guides and shepherds. They, they had diseases and sicknesses that, that did move Jesus to act, and he healed many kinds of those things. But he was moved even more deeply by the, the multitude and the need that they didn't know that they had. The need to be freed from their bondage of sin. Jesus saw this. And the question then comes, and as we see throughout this chapter, is do the disciples see this? Do they recognize this? And although Jesus ministered greatly to the people that followed him, he was also on a mission to train the guys that were with him. He knew that he had a short period of time and he was looking to train them because they would carry on his work when he left. He was always working this way. He was always thinking this way and moving that direction And he's looking here to minister to Philip and those disciples that were standing around. So he's looking to draw Philip's heart and says to him, where where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? And he said this to test him. And Philip answered and says to him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of these people just to have a little. And then the question I had as I studied is, why does he single out Philip? It's a good question. You know, it's said that Philip was, would have been the administrator of the group. That was his job, so to say. Uh, if you remember, uh, I preached on, on Easter about Thomas. And what's his nickname? Doubting Thomas. You know what Philip's nickname was? The bean counter. As you read through the Gospels, you see other, other disciples had certain jobs. Judas actually was in charge of money. That didn't work out too well at the end. But Philip here placed primarily in charge of logistics and travel. I'm sure this job uh, suited his personality. He was the one who was tasked to manage organization and protocol. And I'm sure Philip was the one who was the guy in every meeting that would say, I don't think we can do that. He was the guy that figured out everything with a calculator in his head because they didn't have real calculators. So Jesus is testing Philip. He's testing him to find out what a plan might be. He already knew what he was going to do. But he was testing Philip to show Philip really who he was, how, how he thought, how he reacted, and really to display in full his heart. And so he turns to Philip and asks, so how do you suppose, Philip, that we're going to feed all these people? I believe that Philip was already doing a count in his head when he saw the people coming. This is the way he thinks. He's, he's a guy that did estimates really easily. I'm sure he looked out at the large crowd and he saw denarii signs instead of dollar signs. And adding up, realizing, you know, there's no subway shops. Safeway's not here to buy day-old bread. What are we going to do? You know, they're situated on a mountain. They're tired. They're looking for peace and rest. And here comes a large crowd. And he was already with his calculations because in verse seven, he responds. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. He's already done it in his head. He's already got the answer for Jesus. Jesus, there's too many people and we don't have enough stuff. 200 denarii would have been almost eight months worth of wages. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of food. The question I have in that is, wasn't Philip there when Jesus took 150 gallons of water and turned it into wine? 
Was he there to see the healings? We know that he was, but in this moment, he, he can't think of that. Some say that Philip didn't know what Jesus would do, but he had been around. He had observed Jesus' ministry. He had seen Jesus heal many people by this point. He had witnessed things that were unexplainable on the human level. And it was like he was standing right before the Niagara Falls saying, boy, I'm thirsty if there's only any water. So why the response then by Philip? Why did he respond and say it's not possible? I believe it was simply because he saw with human eyes and his materialistic thinking crowded out all of his faith. And so he responds to Jesus with open unbelief. Jesus, it can't be done. For Philip, money limited his vision. He was bound by the almighty dollar. He lacked the faith to trust in Jesus at this moment. He was so caught up in his earthbound calculations, he didn't see the opportunity to watch God work. He should have just said to Jesus, Jesus, if you want to feed these people, you should feed them. I will stand here and I will watch as, as you do it. I, I know you can do it, Lord. You, you made the water into wine. I, I saw you do that. In fact, I read the Old Testament stories when you sent manna down to the people. I don't know how you're going to do it, Jesus, but I believe that you will, and I want to stand here and watch as you do. But instead, his response is, it can't be done. We don't have enough. And in verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? He'd have been pretty good up to that last point. You know, he, if he had stopped right there before that, what of so many? It would have seemed like he had some faith in what Jesus could do, but then we see his heart. He was proving the same point as Philip. Maybe he had hope as he was walking up from the crowd with this boy to Jesus, excited that he had found the boy that had some food and standing there as Philip responds saying, this is not nearly enough, Jesus, it won't be done. And then his hope fades to pessimism. They both lose out here. They both had an opportunity to put their faith into action and watch what Jesus would do, but instead they back away. And if you're seated here this morning, you desire to be a leader in God's church and God's program, you need to have vision for what the Lord can do not just yourself, not just what money can do. The focus must be on Christ and not our materials, whether that's money or people. Philip was obsessed with earthly needs and only saw the impossibility. He, he knew too much math to be adventurous for Christ. The facts of the situation pushed out faith from his mind. He was so bogged down with the calculations that seemed to be common sense, and he didn't see the opportunity that Jesus was presenting to him. You know, we always have the benefit of looking at this story from the outside and saying, what was he thinking? Doesn't he remember what just happened? But how often do we get bogged down in the details of our life 
and the needs that we have, and we then begin to start to worry and complain and to plan to try to get ourselves out of trouble, all the while forgetting God, all the while forgetting to ask big things. How often do you simply come to Jesus with staunch unbelief and fear instead of trust, instead of faith, Folks, I want to encourage you to have trust. Trust Christ in faith. This is a big, big thing that Jesus is about to do. And we need to be people, believers, that have faith that God can work in big ways. We need to expect big things from God. And we need to remember the power of Christ, the power of Jesus, the second point there in verse 10. You know, I need to be honest this morning. The next two verses are hard for my finite mind to wrap around. Jesus is about to do one of the most magnificent miracles that scripture has for us. In verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there were much grass in the place. The men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. So after Philip and Andrew's attempt to sway Jesus to the reality of the situation, Jesus tells the men to situate the people. There's a lot of people here. You know, the text here in John says about 5,000 in number, but if you compare it with Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, the, the, the number doesn't indicate women and children. So by best estimate, the, the event of people, the number of people that are there are probably reaching 15,000 to 20,000. That's a lot of people. I just had a chance to go to a conference a week ago surrounded by 10,000 people in a basketball arena of Christian workers and pastors. That's a lot of people. Kind of don't, we kind of forget about it. We're in a room of 200. But 15,000 to 20,000 is a lot of people, incredibly large gathering of people. And they're there to listen to Jesus, to see what's gonna happen next. And so log this away. This has gotta be one of Jesus' most public miracles. But Jesus says something outrageous here. Outrageous, at least from the world's vantage point. You know, first he has all the people situated in groups of 50 to 100, as other gospel accounts say, in the grass. And in verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them. He, he gives thanks. He takes five loaves, probably this size, okay? And he gives thanks. You know, a Jewish form of thanksgiving would be, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Boy, that's right. He prays for something that's not there. He's giving thanks for something that's actually not present at that moment. Think about that for the next time when you have a need. Jesus prays in faith. He thanks God. He thanks God knowing that God will supply what's needed. And can you imagine the response from the crowd at this point? If anyone, they're looking, they're observing, they're, they're keyed in to what's happening here. I mean, there's 15,000 people in this crowd. Not all would, would fully understand what's going on. But turn on your imagination here for a moment, Okay. Imagine that you're the 14,999th person in the back, okay? And you're, 
you back row people love this, right? You, you, you know what I'm talking about. You're at the back and you're stretching to see. It's a long ways away. And you now begin to see the disciples gathering baskets to go and, and walk away. And you think, oh, he's feeding people. Man, there's not nearly gonna be enough food for me back here. And here I am, I brought my wife and my four daughters and they're talking all the time about how hungry they are. And we're all the way back here. There is no way that that basket is gonna reach me with food. I knew we should have got here sooner. My wife needed to stop at the bathroom and now we're late and we're all the way in the back. I should have sent Madeline up to the front to get a seat. And you just, you're, you're, on, you're on edge. You see it happening. You see a, a bat, you know, and just think there's no way. There's no way. There's no way it's gonna be back here. They're gonna run out of food. He's just got a basket. How? There's no way. Man, if I just found a seat a little closer to Jesus, hey, can we gather our stuff and move closer to here? The food's gonna run out. And just worry and just up, you know, being upset because it's getting late and now I have to take care of it. We've got to find lodging at some point. We don't have food either. And what are we going to do now? And then here comes Philip with a basket and says, here. And I, I grab it. It's heavy. It's full of bread and fish. It's so heavy, I got to set it down. And I just turn and say, just eat. There's more there, just eat. Eat as much as you want. You know, my kids just eat and eat and eat and eat. They haven't had anything all day, so they're just, they're throwing it down. And we keep eating, and then there's, there's still food in there. And you think, you know, I, I did see, at one point, this little boy carry his knapsack up with some food, but how did this happen? How, how is it, that I, I waited this long and it still comes back and there's still food and everyone around me is not lacking. I've, I've eaten now like I've never eaten before. I have seconds and thirds and how could Jesus do this? Have you thought about that in this story? Jesus takes five barley loaves, real thin, and two small pickled fish, probably. And 15,000 plus people are fed till they're full. They're full. And you know, maybe you're here this morning, you just don't believe it. You think that's just too far-fetched. Jesus couldn't do it. No one could do it. No one can take five loaves of bread and two fish and multiply it to feed so many people. It's not possible. And there's been many people throughout the years in liberal theology that attempt to explain away this miracle. It's just not possible. It's too far-fetched. I can't step out in faith to believe it, so I have to find a way to explain it. 
The scholars that reinterpret this miracle by saying that Jesus didn't actually feed 5,000 people with, with 5,000 to 15,000 people with the loaves, the five loaves and fish. No, what really happened is, is that why Jesus' example of love inspired others to break out the food that they were hiding and think, oh, I better share. They say it's a, it's a miracle of generosity, but not of divine multiplication. They say this miracle doesn't call on us to believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ as God, but it calls us to give to our local food banks. Folks, that is a bunch of horse manure. This really happened. Write that in your margin of your Bible. Because when you die and someone else gets that Bible, I want them to see that. This really happened. This is true. The other gospel writers give the same story. They were there. They, they witnessed Jesus doing this miracle. So that makes four independent sources for this miracle. Four independent gospels that were written, three of which were at the same time by and the number of the witnesses that were there had a chance to read the gospel afterwards, and they would have called them out saying, hey, by the way, that's not true, but that didn't happen. Everyone verified it. That's authentic. This happened. And you look at the response from the disciples after this. In Luke's gospel, chapter 9, Peter's faith that Jesus is the Christ and that he was sent from God directly follows this miracle. This miracle affects our view of who Jesus says he is. This is real. This really happened. I believe that Jesus took five loaves on that hot spring day with over 15,000 people and two fish and he prayed and gave thanks and God multiplied it. And everyone ate all that they could. This is true. So what happens next after this miracle is also important because we see the purpose of Jesus. In verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, when they were stuffed, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who eaten. When the people saw that the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Food has been given out. Everyone's had everything they could eat. They're full, they're stuffed. And then Jesus tells his disciples to get, get the leftovers. There's still stuff left. I had a question by little Violet a number of weeks ago saying, where'd they get the 12 baskets? What a great question. I don't know. They must have had them. I don't know. I looked. I really did. But they're there. They, the baskets are ready and they go gather up the fragments. What significance does this make though? First, I believe God doesn't waste anything. Collecting, was, collecting the leftovers at the end of a meal was a Jewish custom. 
they weren't going to waste the food. There were 12 baskets with fragments of the bread and the fish. I also believe the fact that there were 12 basketfuls left over meant that there was one for each of the disciples to carry. Jesus again, teaching his men, says, here, hold this as proof of who I am. Again. Each of them could see evidence right in front of them that Jesus is more than a mere man. He's God. I'm sure they would remember. I'm sure it'd be etched in their mind as they got up the next morning for breakfast and had leftover bread. They would remember again that Jesus is no mere man. So why did Jesus withdraw in verse 15? I believe it was because of the misplaced enthusiasm from the people in verse 14. They were not wanting Jesus for who he really was. They wanted a vending machine. This is very important for us in our culture today. There are many people that want Jesus and they have great enthusiasm for Jesus, but the Jesus that they are excited for is not the real biblical Jesus. He's someone else, someone of their imagination. They might think of Jesus as a morally good Jesus or a Republican Jesus or a socialist Jesus or a capitalist Jesus or a revolutionary Jesus. And I was reminded again from a pastor in this last week at Together for the Gospel Conference that not all Jesuses are saving Jesuses. The Jesus we read about in this story and the one that what he does in verse 15 is a Jesus that resists the allure of a kingdom without a cross. He had a job to do. This Jesus came not into the world to give you bread. He came to be bread. Do you see Jesus as your giver or your gift? What kind of Jesus do you want? This pastor of the conference went on. He says, you know, not every Jesus is a saving Jesus. And we need to be careful to see Jesus for who he is in the gospels and in the scriptures. A Jesus who needs help in atoning for your sin is not a saving Jesus. A Jesus who is only a prophet in Islam is not a saving Jesus. A Jesus who is a spirit brother of Lucifer as taught in Mormonism is not a saving Jesus. A Jesus who is a symbol and an icon of Hinduism is not a saving Jesus. A Jesus who, cre who was created by God as taught by the Jehovah's Witness is not a saving Jesus. A Jesus who is a good moral teacher or just a food provider is not a saving Jesus. It's only this Jesus that we read in the Gospels and the Scriptures. This Jesus who gives up his life as a ransom for us. This is the saving Jesus. It is this Jesus who is the eternal Son of God, who lived a sinless life here on earth, who willingly and lovingly offers himself as payment for our behalf. It is this Jesus who marched through the streets having his body bloodied, who then was nailed to a tree for my sins. It is this Jesus who died and was buried in a tomb and then three days later rose again. 
and then appear it to over 500 people in his resurrection. It is this Jesus who then ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his children. It is this Jesus who saves. It is this Jesus who's coming back again. With a trumpet blast, and all the dead in Christ will be raised again to life. It is this Jesus who's coming back for his bride. This is the Jesus who saves. It is this Jesus. And if your enthusiasm for Jesus is one for who doesn't exist, who doesn't line up with this, your enthusiasm is misplaced and it's worthless. And Jesus will withdraw and he will leave you and he will go into the mountain. You don't get Jesus on your own terms. You must believe in the Jesus of the Bible, not how the world defines him. It's the scriptures that matter. And the people here are willing to make Jesus king as long as he's providing food for them. He's their magic rabbit foot Does this work in your life too? Jesus, you can be Lord if, if you provide for me what I need. As long as we get what we want, Jesus, we're good. This is not the Jesus of the scriptures. He's not our genie in a bottle. He is our Lord. We submit to him, not the other way around. Do you believe the Jesus of the Bible? And then even as we've learned in the story of how God provides, do you believe that God is big enough for your present day problems? Is God able to work in your current circumstances? We all need to be willing to surrender our insufficiency, our deficiencies to him. I came across a quotation from Elizabeth Elliot this week. It gives this truth beautifully. She writes, if the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this is material for sacrifice has been a very great strength for me, realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am will be refused in the part of Christ. I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fishes with the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that for such a crowd? Naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is, the use he makes of it is none of my business. It is his business. It's his blessing. So this grief, this loss, this suffering, this pain, whatever it is, which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith and bringing me to the recognition of who he is, that is the thing I can offer. Do you have nothing to give to God? Then give him that. God uses our nothing for his glory. It may seem insignificant to us. So we need to set aside our pride and give all that we are to him for his glory, for his use. He will use more than we can imagine. Right? Didn't we... Haven't we seen that in the scripture this morning? 
Jesus can take the smallest gifts and multiply it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity that we've had to join together and to hear your word. I thank you for this remembrance of this incredible miracle that you performed. Creating out of such a small gift and using that, God, Father, we thank you that you, when you see us, you don't look at us like we're insignificant, but you care for us as a shepherd who cares for his sheep. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that have had struggles in the last week have pains and, and suffering and feel as though they don't have much to offer you. May they be reminded again from this story that it's not so much in our gift, but in who you are and what you can use. Pray that we would freely give back our lives to you and service to you. Father, I pray for those here this morning that, that are not trusting in you, They've believed a lie of another Jesus. One that just supplies all that they need. One that just thinks that life should be perfect. And I pray that they would recognize their need for a savior. They would come with humility, trusting in faith that you would save them. And we thank you, Father, that you sent your son to die on the cross for all of our sins. Help us to remember that. Help us to be proclaimers of that as we leave this place. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.